Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, executive editor Nielsen Hobbs, and senior editor Kathy Kelly. Those of us, and many of you I suspect who are located in the Washington, D.C. area uh, as well, are still recovering from the shock of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So please forgive us if we aren't as upbeat as we usually are. But we're still here. Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College has been confirmed, and we're days away from the presidential inauguration. Which leads me to our first topic today. Nearly lost in the chaos of the Capitol Hill attack was the final result of the Georgia Senate runoffs. Democrats won both races, gaining a 50-50 tie in the chamber, which means they will have the majority because Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris will break ties. That means pharma may have to prepare for a number of concerning issues to once again emerge. Kathy, this is your area of expertise, so what should uh, farm officials be looking for when the new Congress begins its work? Yeah, the um, the Democratic majority in the Senate means that drug pricing will stay on the, the agenda and something has a good chance of passing. Um, you know, but addressing the fallout from the pandemic will be the priority for Congress and the administration, probably followed by fixes to strengthen the ACA. So, you know, drug pricing won't be number one priority. Um, also, the, the narrow majority in the Senate means the most progressive or controversial policies, such as H.R. 3, um, probably will be off the table. Um, but one policy that seems likely to succeed because it has broad bipartisan support is a redesign of the Medicare Part D benefit. Um, a key part of the redesign would, it would include capping out-of-pocket costs for beneficiaries, um, with the pharmaceutical industry picking up some of those expenses, probably in the form of a new uh, price discount requirement. Um, this, the redesign was part of legislation in the House and the Senate, um, and, and the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission sent a plan for the redesign to Congress last spring, which is likely to serve as a model. Um, another policy that has at least some bipartisan support in, involves price inflation rebates in Medicare. That was a key element in the drug pricing bill that came out of the Senate Finance Committee under the leadership of Chairman Grassley. Um, but the policy is still opposed by many Republicans in the Senate, which could hamper its progress. Um, other policies um, that could lower prices for Medicare Part B's and boy drugs will probably um, or more, seem more likely to be implemented through administrative action, um, such as a payment demonstration under the auspices of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Um, it's unlikely that a Biden administration will stay with the most favored nation uh, uh, demonstration that addresses Part B drugs, um, but they may try to reshape it and, and you know, um, design a demo that gets at Part B drugs in a different way. So those are sort of the key things that I think we should be watching for. So are we looking at potentially some form of price negotiation moving through here then or or not? You know, I it it um that is something that the Biden campaign, you know, talked about, but I I my gut is that it probably isn't something that's going to get a lot of traction just because it's always been opposed so strongly 
you know, by Republicans and because that, you know, the margin is is so thin in the Senate. Um, but it, it definitely could come up. That's a, a very interesting uh, uh, list, uh, Kathy. I was uh, um, particularly intrigued by your, your first item, this this whole uh, um, cap on uh, out-of-pocket mm -hmm. in uh, Part D. That's been a, a big talking point on, uh, uh, you know, pharma, um, Mm -hmm. Farmers' arguments about uh, drug pricing is that we need to, we need to look at not so much the you know the prices that uh, sponsors charge to insurers, but sort of kind of what uh, uh, you know patients are kind of pay at the pharmacy or sort of kind of wherever they uh, um, they get their uh, they get their bill for the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the drug obviously the pharmacy in the, in Part D. And it actually you know to me that sounds like it might be a pretty good deal if uh, um, you know patients have their uh, their cap, their cost capped, and uh, pharma doesn't uh, have to pay for uh, all of it. That could, uh, you know, yeah. actually encourage more drug use, and uh, you know, sort of kind of diffuse the issue of uh, expensive drugs as a uh, as a headache for them, at least to uh, to a degree. So, uh, do you think that's something that uh, that pharma would uh, would support, uh, depending on the uh, configuration of a of a bill like that? Oh, I do. You know, in fact, they have been supporters of, of capping um, costs. And I think for the reasons that you just mentioned, I think it, it would be a win for them. And I think they are willing to bear some of the expenses of making this happen. So I, I do think it, it does this. That policy does seem to have a lot of support. It's the you know, the difficulty is working out the, the details, but um, that it focuses on the catastrophic phase of the, the benefit and the drugs that are that are really involved in this would be sort of the higher cost specialty drugs, um, but uh, yeah, I, I do think I do think that that's one that um, definitely has potential. The other thing about you know reforming the Part D benefit in some of the ways Kathy described is if you do it in a way where it also saves the government money. Um, mm -hmm. particularly by putting more of the burden on insurers or farmers or so forth. Um, right. That would give Congress some savings to do other things they might want to do, whether it's in health policy or otherwise. Um, so, you know, that's always attractive to legislat legislators um, as they're, you know, looking for ways to do reforms without, you know, saying that they're contributing to, you know, the federal deficit or government spending and so forth. So I've seen yeah. some, you know, commentary that that's part of the reason why some of that would be attract, might be attractive to that, yeah. folks in Congress. I think that's true. Um, part of the redesign would be reducing the amount of financial obligations that Medicare has in the catastrophic phase um, significantly. And so that would be where the, the savings would come from. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask that. Is like if, if you're you're capping out of pocket costs by definition, you're you're potentially contributing to more spending. So. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, Medicare now picks up eighty percent of costs in the catastrophic phase. So that would be that would be phased way down. Plans are responsible for fifteen percent, so their share would go up, and then there would be some new discount um, um, established for manufacturers in the catastrophic phase. So yeah, that's how they would sort of re sort of spread the responsibility uh, differently than it than it currently is. Yeah, and there's been just a lot of talk over, you know, a number of years about how 
the amount of money the government picks up in the catastrophic phase may just be kind of incentivizing insurers and mm-hmm. to just get push patients through and perhaps even has some impact on where companies even set their pricing. Um, so yeah. um, there's That's some true. hope it might, you know, just give maybe even put more of the burden on insurers to think about how to better negotiate prices in Part D. And, right. you know, there could be a, a lot of different trickle-down effects That's right. of that kind yeah. of reform. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another kind of random question maybe here. I mean, is there any sense that I, I'm thinking about timing now? I mean, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, President-elect Biden takes office in 12 days you know, from mm-hmm. this recording, he's, they're going to have to do his cabinet. They're going to have to do a budget. They're going to have to do, I mean, there's the, the investigation of the security failures at the, at the Capitol is going to take up a lot of oxygen up, yeah. you know, on Capitol Hill. I mean, what, when are they even going to find time to work on this? I, I know they've, I guess they've got legislation already that's written. So it's not like they have to start from scratch, but you know, mm-hmm. When can we see this actually start to move if they decide yeah. to do it? Yeah, uh, it's, it's true. Could it be a couple of years away? Um, yeah. I mean, there's also in, in sort of the drug pricing area, there are those sort of last minute rules that the Trump administration released that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with, you know, whether it's the lawsuits or whatever else. So there'll be sort of a cleanup of, of those that they're going to have to address pretty, you know, pretty quickly too yeah yeah so more interesting things to watch and enjoy as we as we move along (laughs) so our second topic this week is the troubles with operation warp speed the the federal effort to develop vaccines and now get them into uh people's arms uh over the holiday break the federal government missed its goal of vaccinating 20 million people and ideas were floated about changing the dosing schedule for the Moderna vaccine to increase the number of people vaccinated, although the FDA quickly knocked that idea down. Matt, you were following these developments. What was uh, what were the big things that stuck out with you? Well, it's just, uh, um, I think, frustrating for everybody that's sort of kind of that uh, now that we have this very uh, uh, promising uh, vaccines or two, uh, two very sort of, uh, you know, helpful products uh, that have emergency use authorization, that... Uh, you know, they're just sort of, they're not just sort of, you know, sitting waiting for FDA, uh, you know, clearance or uh, even to sort of get where they need to be, but they can't, uh, can't quite get into people's arms. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a, uh, a uh, you know, a sort of a fresh strategy for how that's, uh, uh, that's going to, uh, um, going to get done uh, quickly. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, infighting in states through kind of uh, some finger pointing between, uh, you know, state and local officials, officials about, uh, you know who's to blame for the uh, the slow pace in various states, and uh, um, you know from the federal government we have not heard a whole lot of sort of uh, bold ideas about sort of how to change uh, uh, things. There's you know been a long-standing plan to at some point uh, you know use retail pharmacies and uh, um, uh, you know sort of make it basic marketing mechanisms for kind of once uh, the initial uh, uh, high priority groups have been uh, um, vaccinated and. Uh, you know, I suspect that we may sort of, sort of move into that uh, phase before perhaps there's a uh, complete uh, um, inoculation of uh, uh, people in uh, phase 1A, just because uh, 
Um, it's been going so slowly, but, uh, um, you know, I think uh, um, a lot of the discussion about uh, having more dose, uh, um, you know, more doses is a little bit of a red herring given that their doses were kind of being being set aside uh, um, and not uh, um, and not, you know, putting people's arms, uh, you know, when they're uh, at that last stage of, uh, of distribution. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, if there were just a uh, an abundance of vaccine, you could see, uh, you know, CVS and Walgreens are kind of starting to advertise it and sort of kind of, uh, you know, ramp up more uh, more aggressive promotions about sort of get, actually getting people into uh, into clinics and doing that kind of stuff. And so, uh, um, you know, it is a sort of, uh, you know, even the Moderna one is sort of a little delicate in terms of sort of, kind of how you have to uh, uh, handle the cold chain and so uh, um, Pfizer more particularly. So if there's sort of kind of some concern about uh, um, just sort of, kind of opening it up and sort of kind of uh, not uh, um, uh, being able to use all the stuff that you were, uh, um, you're ready to use, if there was sort of a whole lot more that uh, that could sort of resolve that uh, uh, resolve that issue, but it's uh, um, um, it's disappointing to see that sort of kind of uh, um, you know in some sense it's a uh, reflection of sort of kind of uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the federal response to uh, the uh, the pandemic sort of kind of at the beginning you could you know the discussion of uh, um, you know personal protective uh, um, equipment that uh, um, you know was sort of the the policy was basically sort of kind of uh, you know tell the states to uh, acquire it and hope it works out and uh, and now. Uh, uh, it seems like the same thing is happening with uh, um, with the final efforts on uh, um, uh, you know vaccine uh, um, injections. That I just uh, you know wish there had been uh, um, more of a plan to make sure that it all went smoothly, as opposed to sort of kind of uh, creating a little bit of chaos that isn't good for anybody. So it, it, I think and, uh, former Commissioner Mark McClellan uh, talked a little bit about this this week. Um, it, it, the issue is that he called it the last inch. I mean, which essentially is, you know, the 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 part where th there isn't an issue getting the vaccine to the states where the states want it delivered. It's going from there to actual people. Right. That that's the that's the problem we're in, we're in now. That, that does seem like it's been more of the uh, like limiting factor. Obviously, you know, we started this conversation out talking a little bit about, you know, should we be having the doses? Should we be, you know, just releasing all the doses and not worrying as much about holding back the second dose and just kind of hoping they'll be there or not worrying too much about the exact timing of it. But it seems like from the reports, the issue really hasn't been the lack of quantity, which um, because we aren't efficiently getting out the doses we have. Um, so it does seem like a very sort of, like you said, a very end of the road kind of problem. Uh, different figures from HHS this week have said, you know, have emphasized and sort of tried to give states more freedom to say, okay, look, if this very strict sort of staging CDC recommended around vaccination, is holding things back. Try don't feel so wedded to that. You know, it's better to divert from that than just have vaccines sitting around or um, even you know have to throw out vaccine or something like that because it expires before you can get people um, vaccine. So it seems, but it, I'm not. Sh so it seems like they're kind of dealing with a delicate balance. Um, 
it's also, you know, I think it's important to note that states have long been asking for billions of dollars, even CDC, I think, <laughs> has been saying states need billions of dollars to, you know, really effectively roll out these vaccination campaigns and that money um, never really came. There's been some money was um, appropriate at the end of the year, but it's certainly much less than states say they need. And we just don't have a health system that's set up to do this. Um Problem. So again, I think the debate about, you know, the different dose forms and everything else is interesting, but it seems like first we have to fix this more initial um, problem of sort of trying to go by this kind of phased approach we had for vaccine, which was designed to kind of be equitable and fair, given the people that were most um, kind of at risk in this pandemic without letting that slow down too much. The other thing I just want to add that I think is interesting, too, is there had been this idea, again, that like these were EUA products, that there's sort of a higher risk or more unknowns, that burst benefit trade-off was different. So you should be giving it first to people like healthcare workers who kind of have a different risk-benefit calculus than somebody who can perhaps stay at home. But the interesting thing is now at this point, you know, nobody I don't think anybody thinks of these products in, as if they have an emergency use authorization, you know, in many ways, we're just we're dealing with products where people seem to feel much more comfortable and treating them more like they do have a full BLA. And I think that like changes the dynamics of like how much people are clamoring for them. And um, the maybe the prioritization should have been rethought once, um, you know, the risk benefit calculus was a bit different than maybe when people were thinking we might get a 50% effective vaccine, or we might know less about safety or the safety profile was different. That's a great, uh, great point, Sarah, that sort of that, uh, uh, you know, there's obviously going to be uh, uh, segments of the population that are hesitant about uh, vaccines and, uh, you know, perhaps these in particular because of the, uh, the speed of development, but it does seem like, uh, um, there's a lot more interest in having the vaccine than there is ability to uh, actually administer it at this point, even when it is available. So, uh, um, you know, maybe some uh, prioritization that's sort of kind of focused mostly on uh, um, age as the criteria and sort of ASIP did sort of move towards that in the end, but sort of it would be, you know, maybe easier to organize and sort of, you know, there'd be more sort of kind of uh, um, people available to get inoculated if, uh, um, if there's a, a, an easier way to tell sort of when am I eligible to get the vaccine, um, that could have been well, yeah, a question. I, have, I um, have no idea when yeah, I'm, we'll yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, I have no idea when I'm going to be eligible to get it. I mean, if I'm ever going to get it at this point, you know, mm -hmm. so. <laughs> they'll, they'll eventually yeah, I mean, make some for you, Derek. So uh, yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can, the, is this something that the Biden administration could fix in sort of a, a rapid way or, or, or not? What are you? So what's your... As we were record, as we've been recording this, I just noticed um, something popped up on my screen that CNN is now reporting um, that the Biden administration plans to um, more quickly release the second doses and not hold them back. Hmm. So we'll we'll see what what happens with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm I would think they could certainly maybe somehow try and push more money or resources out to states. I mean, to me, I sort of wonder if there's more of a way to like nationalize this in some regard because you have, I mean, this isn't just, it's not even that this is happening at the state level. In many cases, every county in the US 
has their own sort of approach and resources and mm-hmm. um so it's really confusing i think for the average person to figure out how to you know figure out where they are in line where do they sign up um and it seems like maybe this is a time where you know I mean, there is a lot of reasons why you need to customize, I think, some of these kind of public health initiatives to the particular populations and localities. Um, but it seems like maybe there could be more efficiencies if there's like a nas- more national infrastructure brought to bear for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting issue. And, you know, the and the single dose thing also was, you know, I think that, that there was a I think that 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 I'm glad the FDA kind of knocked that down really fast. I mean, just because there there was growing kind of it it felt like there was kind of growing, uh, you know, thinking that maybe they should just inoculate everybody once and just kind of you know see what happens be, just to get the shots in arms more in more arms. But uh, you know the, the data obviously doesn't they they have no data to show whether that works or not. So. It, it was very the FDA was really quick to to kind of knock that down. <clears throat> Finally, today, in a piece of positive and non-COVID news, we look at the FDA's novel approval count for 2020. For only the second time ever, Cedar approved more than 50 novel products in a year. The 53 NMEs and novel biologics trailed the 59 approved in 2018, but are still substantial considering that it was done when the coronavirus pandemic was hanging over it almost the entire year. FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn has said repeatedly that the pandemic would not be an excuse to slow its regular duties, and it appears that this is uh, some proof of that. So I'll throw this out there. If Cedar can do this during a pandemic, could we see this kind of pace continue in more normal times or what we post-pandemic times, whatever we're calling that now? I certainly think so. Uh, and uh, obviously, the uh, I think the count could have been higher had FDA been able to uh, Inspect some of the facilities of some of the uh, uh, pending applications, and uh, you know, clear those uh, uh, manufacturing sites to uh, um, give a thumbs up to the products. We've written about, uh, you know, how uh, um, how there's been some unfortunate complete response letters uh, um, because of that, and even just sort of kind of uh, extended uh, um, reviews as FDA sort of kind of takes this approach to, uh, you know, if they're not uh, uh, sure about a manufacturing facility, they're not going to uh, um, uh, give it the okay. So. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, as we've experienced that, uh, um, you know, telework, uh, um, you know, work from home, uh, you know, can actually be pretty productive. I think we've had a, uh, um, a great, uh, um, a great output of uh, our little product and uh, um, FDA has done the same. And obviously, they're kind of under a great, uh, a great deal more stress than, uh, than we are putting out the pink sheet uh, um, every day. So, uh, so it can work. Uh, you know, I think in terms of the, uh, um, the annual uh, um, approval count for uh, 2021, or uh, um, going forward, as uh, um, as the agency likes to say, it just depends on uh, what applications they get. So, uh, um, and uh, you know, I think we honestly will see uh, perhaps a uh, pandemic-related slowdown on that front, as for kind of uh, trials that have been interrupted or uh, you know programs that were put on hold, uh, um, you know, who don't uh, don't get to the agency in the same kind of time, and then. Uh, um, you know, uh, you know, perhaps the uh, reviewers will have to uh, struggle with sort of what do you do with a uh, a reconstructed trial that's been submitted? It's sort of kind of that the data was gathered in a different way, and perhaps it's a little uh, wonky on one side or the other, and sort of that could be uh, a review challenge. But I think it's very heartening that they've been able to do this. 
There's maybe a, maybe a more appropriate question with this is, does the FDA want to continue like this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, my guess would be no. I mean, I, I've, I've jokingly said that, you know, when they finally get through, you know, when we get past this, that they're going to have to just, you know, give everyone a mandatory two-week vacation because they're all going, you know, they're all going 24 hours a day, seven days a week in some cases, you know, for months and months and months. I mean, you just can't, you know, and they've said this, we can't maintain this pace going forward. But, you know, I mean, you got to you got to wonder if, you know, they're going to get some latitude, you know, but, indus- you know, on that. But industry is going to get, you know, is, is already saying like, hey, you've proven you can do it now. So, well, well hopefully if you're not, you know, maintaining the coronavirus hotline and doing all this sort of extra pandemic related stuff that will it will it will be easier for them to sort of move at the same uh, assessment pace that they've been uh, doing this year. The other thing um, you, you do sort of wonder is like with user fee negotiations starting off now and, um, you know, the FDA's role here in this pandemic into the general just sort of health of the American public being demonstrated in a unique way. How does that impact, you know, the resources or what FDA can get out of that next round to maybe give them more staff or resources or so forth so that they're better positioned to deal with the um, work that comes their way. Yeah, they've, they've certainly made the case, you know, for, for more staff, I think, at this point, <laughs> given everything that's going on. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Pharma Intelligence Podcasts. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Gingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Matt Hobbs, and Kathy Kelly. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.